Welcome, everybody, to the Medio Podcast. Uh, my name is Josh Harrigan, and I am a fellow in pediatric infectious diseases and clinical informatics at Boston Children's Hospital, joined today by my co-host, uh, Jason Newland. Jason, you want to introduce yourself? Yep, so I'm uh, Jason Newland. I am a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Washington University in St. Louis, as well as at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Um, I am the director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, and I have known the wonderful Dr. Josh Harrigan since before he was Dr. Josh Harrigan. Um, and I am very excited to be reinvigorating or restarting our podcast. Yeah, so we're, we're actually back. I mean, I think everybody listening to this is going to be new to this podcast because the last time we recorded anything that uh, was published publicly, at least, was March 2014. And uh, so back at, at that point, uh, I was still in medical school. I was just finishing medical school, actually, um, in Kansas City at the University of Kansas, then went on to uh, residency at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. And uh, then short three years later, I uh, had moved on to Boston. And so that's where I'm at right now. And I don't, in 2014, where were you? You were, wow. you were still March, on the Wow, March right? 2014, six years ago? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I was, uh, I would have been um, in Kansas City. Uh, I remember recording in your house uh, <laughs> that you went to medical school, at, um, that house out near KU. Um, so yeah, I would have been there in Kansas city. I would have, and I moved from Kansas city to St. Louis in January of 2016. Uh, and I've been here since, uh, and now I've done a lot of work in getting in stewardship, uh, both at a, in our children's hospital, as well as at our local healthcare system level. And now obviously my world has been surrounded by COVID-19. How can it not be? Uh, I think everybody obviously has had that impact. Um, so for our first topic, uh, you know, we're going to use a timely subject uh, related to COVID-19 and talk about this uh, remdesivir study that just came out uh, actually two days ago. So this study that we're going to talk about is uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's the entitled Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID-19, a Preliminary Report. And this was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of intravenous remdesivir in adults hospitalized with COVID-19. And they randomly assigned people to placebo um, or remdesivir for up to 10 days and uh, the primary outcome was time to recovery, or at least the uh, analyzed primary endpoint was time to recovery. Um, and so the, the major finding from this study was that remdesivir shortened recovery time from a median of 15 days uh, in the placebo group down to 11 days in the treatment group. So I don't, you know, this is an incredibly fascinating study for uh, many, many reasons. Usually randomized controlled trials, I don't think have enough uh, or have as many like kind of issues uh, around them, but this is, is so fascinating. So I don't know, where do you want to start, Jason? Well, I found, I think the history of this is should be just talked about up front, which is the fact we knew this study was kind of ongoing, but we had you know, Dr. Fauci come and speak about this trial um, 
publicly. I think what was it, April twenty ninth? Yeah. With this, and and it and and came out publicly and said the following words: "Standard of care. This will be the stand, quote unquote standard of care." And those are bold statements without a published study. Um, and all based on this 15 days versus 11 days time to recovery with not understanding what time to recovery meant, right? I and mean, you just assume they got better, but what does that mean got better? And with the fact that mortality benefit was not demonstrated. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the fact that this was a pandemic setting made the decision that, well, this is just too good. We're going to have to stop and move on. Stop meaning stop the trial and let's get this thing out. And so then you get the emergency use um, authorization. So th- for those out there that might not be medical, I mean, essentially remdesivir, the only way you were getting it prior to May 1st, and we'll get into some other things here in a second, but prior to May 1st was you had to be in a study or if you were a child less than 18 or a pregnant woman, you could get it on a compassionate use basis as long as you were ventilated and confirmed positive, is what I, if I recall. And so, it, I mean, this this was a this is a game change. This was a game changer in regards to how people were going to manage those with severe COVID nineteen illness. Game changer, really? You're gonna you're gonna go with game changer? Well, I mean, it was a game changer. Here, here, here's what I would say: it's a game changer when you when you talk about how people were going to manage COVID-19 illness, not a, maybe a game changer when it comes to, are they going to do better or worse? If that makes sense. Right. Cause now if you hear, Oh, I have a severe COVID-19 it, the first statement now is let's get them remdesivir. Prior to that, it was like, let me just give them whatever I can get. Yeah. I, my, my toes just curl a little bit when I hear the game changer Fair. Um, adjective thrown out for things just because it has been thrown around so much throughout this crisis that uh, yeah, you <laughs> I had, just hesitate a little bit. It's fair, but you had the head of the NIH who, let's be clear, had become the face of this pandemic from a medical perspective, said standard of care. Yeah. Well, yeah, in that back up to this that whole uh that whole scenario that happened with this so and it's interesting that um you know we we have that timeline because there was public releases and stuff from the NIH and um we kind of know what happened there but in the in this actual New England Journal paper they address it they they tell you pretty much what, exactly what happened so there was an interim analysis on April 27th which was planned all along yep. i mean I don't think we should get too far deep into the the protocol for this study because um, actually happened to look at it. It's 367 pages long, which is uh, one testament to the complexity in doing trials like this. And maybe today or at another time, we can get into why these trials are so complex and hard to do and expensive and everything. But so they 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 did that unblinding, and it's interesting because the the data safety monitoring board um, made those decisions, and then uh, d- were the ones that decided to reveal it to uh, the NIH, and the NIH then went ahead um, through whatever governance or process they had in terms of revealing it to the the public, and then you know I, I recall at that time when I saw those results and reactions on Twitter and everything. People were like, 
okay, this is this is interesting. It's uh, a nice uh, outcome that that they're presenting to us. But people are really clamoring for the actual uh, publication of the data. What, what we got on Friday, people wanted to see that so that they could you know formally evaluate it and make their own decisions. So I, you know, do do you think if you'd been well, let's start with the data safety monitoring board. You know, do you think that you would like that you would have uh, recommended uh, revealing this to the NIH and and uh, moving this study towards publication? Oh, um, so I think in the face of a pandemic where a lot of people had severe illness in some high risk groups. And we had nothing yet that seemed promising. I can completely see why the notion of doing something was going to weigh out than waiting for for more time. There was a well, and like you like you just talked about and highlighted, like it, it had real consequences in terms of getting the EUA from FDA and actually moving this towards a more widely available treatment, right? Correct. And, 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 and just now, I mean, this is, you know, this, this data was revealed, right? This came out, I mean, I think the EUA or the emergency use authorization came out May 1st. It wasn't until a week ago from this past Tuesday, which would have put us on, let's see, I'll tell you what date that would have been. May 12th, did people start receiving drug to be able to give to patients, right? So it took almost another two weeks from that before you could get on, you know, drug. And even when they, when people got drug, they didn't have enough potentially to use to treat their patients. So if you wait, there are much more people that wouldn't receive this drug. And you already had, you know, one statistical outcome that was um, significant. Now we can get into, I think we should, we definitely have to talk about this outcome time to recovery. Um, but you didn't have mortality, right? Mortality didn't show benefit, but I think everyone's assuming mortality would be benefit. So you just pulled the trigger. I, I, I mean, I think that's what you do. I mean, what's interesting around this time, if I recall correctly, is there was notion that in some other studies that the company said that they were going to have to, they wanted to get more patients, that they were expanding their um, you know, numbers to enroll, which a lot of people were speculating was because it just wasn't showing what they expected. Now, I don't know. I don't think it was with this trial. It might've been with a different trial. Um, Cause there's not, you know, there's more than just this NIH trial that are being done with remdesivir. Yeah, no. And I, I think it's a great point in terms of um, being in the midst of a crisis, the slow pace at which medical research and drug development can move into the real world in treating patients. And I mean, you know, if we, if we look at this broadly, um, I, I can't remember the exact date of when they had, uh, submitted the initial protocol, but it's like in early February. Um, and to move from yeah. that to putting a, a, trial in place in terms of, uh, you know, around the world, countries are locked down and there's travel restrictions and a bunch of other things, which we can come back to, but they, they touch on that in their discussion as well in the paper, which I thought was interesting in terms of conducting a trial during an ongoing pandemic right. and the, the things, the logistical things that it, it 
uh, caused for them from their normal protocols and procedures. Um, but to move to designing this trial, putting it together, putting everything in place to, you know, in three months, crazy, this basically moving, you know, as you pointed out, Fauci has said standard of care. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. So, but let's, can we get back to, can we talk a little bit about the endpoint? Yes. Let's talk about that. I want to get you, I've got to hear what your thoughts are on this. Cause I find the endpoint just fascinating. There, there's really, in my mind, there's, there's two kind of issues here. One is just, do you, do you think like time to recovery is a sufficient endpoint? And then the other is they changed the endpoint in this study. Not I, what you usually you know, talk about though. They explain it pretty in depth of why they made the change though. And the change was not done based on any looking at data. Yeah. So it, it, that's not, again, this paper is so fascinating. They do it <laughs> twice. They explain changing the endpoint in the, the methods. And then they explain it again in the discussion. And they're very, it, the tone that I got from that was they're very defensive about it, which I think they rightly should be because the whole point in designing randomized controlled trials and submitting them to the uh, trials.gov database is so that you can't change your endpoints because they're supposed to be determined a priori. But so the rationale for changing it was that uh, they data was emerging from observational studies and some other trials, I think, that have been going on that they were not a part of. Um, as you said, they didn't look at any of their own data and they were seeing that some people were having a protracted course, a longer course of COVID than was really, um, initially appreciated. And so they basically, um, changed their endpoint to account for that. I mean, what do you think? (laughs) I mean, what are you supposed to think? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Like, I think I think the key is I think the key one thing is explain what the change was, what was the endpoint before, and then they changed it to what because I think that would help as we we go as people listen. So the original primary endpoint was um, the endpoints were all around this eight category ordinal scale, um, whereby they ranged from being completely healthy to death, um, and then variation in between on like different levels of oxygen support and hospitalization and things like that. I find these interesting. I find these, let's just talk. I just want to lay them out. So if you had endpoint one, which one would be not hospitalized, no limitations of activities. Endpoint two is not hospitalized, limitations of activities, home oxygen requirement, um, or both. Three was hospitalized, not requiring supplemental oxygen. Okay. So even there, if you look at the top three, you essentially, and, and actually the number three is hospitalized, not requiring supplemental oxygen and no longer requiring ongoing medical care. So that's used if hospitalization was extended for infection control reasons. So just those top three, essentially someone that's doing pretty well, right? And then four is hospitalized, not requiring supplemental oxygen, but requiring care. Five is hospitalized, requiring oxygen. Six is hospitalized, requiring non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen devices seven is hospitalized receiving invasive or ECMO and eight is death I mean as you were saying I would say like the primary outcome was just looking at defined as the difference in clinical status defined by the eight ordinal scale Um, but then that became then that became the secondary outcome 
Yeah, that was the that was the original was right. this difference in clinical status, and then they switched to a time to recovery, and they lengthened. Originally, they were just going to look at um, day fifteen right. was going to be the the primary, and then they they not only switched to time to recovery, but also switched to looking at day twenty eight. In time to recovery, um, if I'm not mistaken, was you had to be in one of the one of the first three categories. Yes. So yes, I mean that's. That's true time to recovery, right? These are all people. I mean, let's look at this again, right? These are all people. First and second category, you're not hospitalized. Um, right. Not hospitalized, limitation of activities or home oxygen requirement um, or both. So so you could be not hospitalized but on oxygen. So that's interesting in some respects. But for the most part, if you can go home. And three is just hospitalized with no ongoing medical care. So, yes. so fascinating, right? Because two and three are pretty much... You could argue three is healthier than two. Yeah, you could. But like from a clinician standpoint, does time to recovery matter? Wow. That's I've had I've had my own thoughts and stuff about this around Ulsultamavir and influenza oh, as well. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, it doesn't um, matter. Who cares? So what? Right? These I mean, are those questions. So I, I so I'm going to argue that it it is a good outcome to measure and it does matter, especially in a pandemic setting. And the reason I say that is because if you have a healthcare system that is being overwhelmed by the number of patients and you shorten hospitalizations by three days or four days, granted, they didn't exactly show that in particular, but let's just say you can shorten your hospitalizations to some some extent. Um, and mind you, all these are hospitalized patients. This isn't like outpatient therapy or stuff like that. So I do think that it does matter in that context and in that setting. So uh, the one argument to against that, and I, I think I agree with you. I think it makes sense. But we all know that when you when you throw in time, especially in a hospital setting, the way people manage can be very different in different places. So if you like when you look at length of stay, right? Length of stay is a terrible outcome measure most of the time, though we use it often because there's such variability in ways people can manage. You could argue mm. that some places now randomizations are supposed to handle that, right? In theory. And I'm, I haven't. I'm, I should know the statistical analysis better. I'm sure there probably was some analysis done to account for facilities. But you know, different facilities might have different levels of how they get someone off oxygen or not, or or mm-hmm. when they discharge them home. I mean, that can be an argument. Like mortality is. There's no doubt. We know that, right? That's that's one of the other arguments you'd say. Now, I think I agree. I I would have. I think in the end, I do it, but. A time-based outcome in a hospital setting can have influences that you hopefully can account for, and randomization hopefully does it. But again, this was across around the world, so that it could have impact. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say to that there. So it was uh, around the world, but I think almost eighty percent of the cases were in North America, and that um, they did do block randomization by study site. So I think you're you're controlling for that a little bit but that's a very very interesting point and it's fascinating i do find this when you give the drug also important 
right? The median number of days between symptom onset and randomization was nine days. Um, oh man, I'm so so glad you brought that up because this is like yes. this is one of the keys for me too. So go keep going. The the median onset, as you pointed out, was nine days in this study. They did a sub-analysis within it where they bifurcated the symptom duration before starting drug at 10 days. And it, there, there was no difference between the, the people who had less than 10 days of symptoms and those that had greater than 10 days of symptoms. But I, I think that that is – I was actually really disappointed in that analysis in that – Maybe maybe the the groups would have been too small if you tried to you know have some shorter durations like less than five days uh, you know five to ten days ten or more than ten days, but I think um, you know it, especially with experience uh, with other respiratory viruses and treatments we know that they work better when they're given earlier on right and I, I heard there's a, a a great talk that I'll link to in the show notes for this um, by Mark Dennison from Vanderbilt. Yes. Um, that he gave to the Broad Institute here, um, virtually, of course. Uh, that's it's uh, it's a YouTube video, but like he, I I didn't realize that he had been working on coronaviruses at pretty much his entire career, yes. and he, he worked on remdesivir yeah. before it was remdesivir, and they were him and UAB were the ones that that saw that it had an um, efficacy against SARS. SARS-CoV. And I mean, one of the things that he hits on in that talk, and the reason that I bring it up is that this notion of um, treating people earlier on in the disease course and um, treating people that may not be as symptomatic. I mean, we and the analysis from this paper also shows that it has little benefit when you are, you know, have reached critical illness um, at that point. Yeah. And I think it's important to see what their inclusion criteria were. Like who got treated, and so that's not in the original. That's not in the actual. You have to go to the supplement, and the supplement says, and "I'm just going to read it so people." Like I would, I was like, "Who, who, who did they, you know, include?" So participants had to meet one of the following criteria, suggestive of lower respiratory tract infection at the time of enrollment. So that's radiographic infiltrates by imaging study, peripheral oxygen saturation less than or equal to ninety four percent on room air or requiring supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation, or ECMO. Um, there was no limit to the duration of symptoms prior to enrollment, um, and then they had to be laboratory confirmed. I mean, that's important to know. And then exclusions, I think it's important to talk about exclusions. So that's if you had ALTs or ASTs greater than five times the upper limit of normal, impaired renal function as determined by calculating an estimated glomerular filtration. So a GFR, oh my gosh, or needing hemodialysis, allergy, pregnancy, um, and anticipate discharge, and you had to be greater than 18, or 18 years of age or older, sorry, 18 years of age or older. Uh, yeah, so table one, I, I think this is one of the criticisms of it, is that the majority of patients, if you combine level four and five, so hospitalized, yeah, um, not requiring oxygen and those hospitalized requiring oxygen, that was the majority of the cases. Yeah. And so, you know, it kind of argues against, um, you know, this being beneficial for the, the sickest of the sick, because most of the, or the, uh, I would say this, a slight preponderance of the, the cases were less ill. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, the other thing that's um, interesting is the methods do talk about giving remdesivir for up to 10 days. The duration's important. Yeah. Um, and that has, a, and I, we can talk here in a second of why that has such impact. Um, and it's it's not clear to me what the mean time of, or the median time of receiving the drug was. And maybe it's just because I haven't seen that as I read through this a couple of day, times. Um, do you have a sense of what the how the median of remdesivir receipt was? Was it always ten days? Uh, it's a good question. I don't, I don't remember really seeing that in the paper. And I think, so my understanding is that you received 10 days unless you got so much better that you went home. Right. That's what that, and that, and I think that's important, right? Like, do, do we have that sense? I'm not seeing anything in any of the tables that give us a sense of what the median time on remdesivir was. And, and I will have a point about that here in a second, but I, I don't see it anywhere. I mean, the <laughs> yeah, discussion, no, I, basically, the first line of the discussion, preliminary results of this trial suggest that a 10-day course of remdesivir was superior to placebo, which suggests that most of them got 10 days. Now, why do I bring that up? I, I So before we, again, we have to recall, this became emergency use um, access May 1. People started our hospital our hospitals, a couple of our hospitals in our system received doses Tuesday night. What day did I say that was? Tuesday night. I remember this vividly because my wife and I were like, what? May 12th. Um, and we had none of this information. We There is another trial that we'll need to find to put in the show notes that compared 10 versus 5 days of remdesivir that suggested no difference. And so we also only got, and so the way that the drug's being allocated is it goes from Health and Human Services, um, and they allocate it to the states, and then the states allocate it to different hospitals based on severity of illness in the hospitals. But we had no clue who, who should we give it to, right? We have all these mm-hmm. patients in the hospital that are in our ICUs and there, but who should get it? And we don't have enough to give to everybody. So now we have to decide who should get it without this information. So yeah. there's no doubt the first decision that was made was, well, we should only give a five-day course. Interesting. So now what do we do? How are, how, and I think that was a pretty common – most people around the country that I know had talked about, okay, everyone, we're just going to give a five-day course. Um, so now what do we do? Now should everyone get 10 days? I'll have to ask my wife that. I don't know if we've even talked about that. This is what's so good about this yeah. podcast. I'm, I'm having to make decisions <laughs> as we talk. Yeah, I don't know. No, that's that's uh, that's an interesting and difficult uh, decision to do, and it's very the whole five day versus ten day in general seems to be. Uh, it's made up, right? I mean, we know this. We know yeah, that exactly durations of therapy. Our whole lives, what do we do? We pick. We've all you've heard me say this a zillion times. We pick the number of fingers or toes, or we pick the lunar calendar, or a football score, whatever you want to say. It's random based on what we feel comfortable with. Now, it's also hard to say, right, we want to give just the right amount of drug or the right number of days of drug until you're better without leading to toxicity or resistance. So if you, but let's say you had a a decent amount of drug available and the recommended duration is 10 days, um, but people are getting better. 
at day six, or you have a, a you know a handful of patients that are getting better before the ten day course is up. With this with this data, do you then do, do you stop them? Do you go a full ten days? Great question. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Here's here's another here's a paper from Lancet. Remdesivir in adults with severe COVID-19, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial. Um, also published May 16th, but EPUBed April 29th. Um, that interpretation, and you probably know this, in this study of adult patients admitted to hospital for severe COVID-19 was not associated with statistically significant clinical benefits. Now, we haven't gone into this trial, and it was only 158 to remdesivir and 79 to placebo. So that's probably numbers and maybe when they gave it. That was, that was the trial that was out of China. Yep. Correct. That, that I, I don't think we have time to get into that study. Maybe we can talk about it next week or something. But the, to me, the most fascinating thing about that is that the reason that they couldn't meet their enrollment is because the outbreak ended for them. Right. Well, that's a good point. And, and I think the other key here is the time. I mean, and again, we shouldn't go into this one in depth, but it's a good thing paper for people to just know about. Um, and, and their interval from symptom onset to enrollment was 12 days, right? So that's three more days versus what this study showed. Again, earlier, probably better. Yeah. Now, I think the other important thing that those who aren't in medicine might not realize is remdesivir is only an IV or intravenous drug. It's not oral. Yeah, so exactly that. I mean, that creates such a challenge, right? If we're going to say, hey, we need to treat people early on when they're mild in their course to prevent progression to disease, how do you do that when it's only IV? Right. I mean, we're just like we'd all like to have an oral drug like um, that we have for influenza, we would love to have similar for, for COVID 19 or for SARS CoV 2. Um, but we'll see. So let me, let me bring up. One one more issue about this paper that I think is very fascinating. Okay. Um, not not necessarily di- directly related to the methods and results and everything that we've been discussing, but this paper was published online at about six p.m. Eastern time on Friday of a holiday weekend. Now. I find that utterly shocking. I happened to be on Twitter uh, around that time and seen that it was published relatively early. But like the reason that I bring this up is because I, I don't really know anything about media or media cycles or news cycles and stuff like that, except for things that I learned from watching the West Wing. <laughs> and- My media savvy is based on a, was it nineties? <laughs> was it a nineties show? It was probably in the nineties, right? Uh, is, uh, I feel like early 2000s. I don't know. Okay. This is great. Uh, we would watch, uh, we would binge watch. They'd have like marathons uh, when I was in college and we'd like binge watch it all weekend. Greatest show ever, okay. people, here if you we, haven't seen it. Here we go. Original broadcast but, on NBC from September 22nd, 1999 <laughs> to May 14th, 2006. Seven yes. seasons, 156 episodes. Okay. Keep going, so, mister. I learned my media from the West Wing. <laughs> but I, I, I think that's this is accurate. But like, I, and I, I may have to like try and dig up the episode or clip or whatever. But they, 
on that show, they'll say, if you want to bury anything, you release it on a Friday afternoon. And if it's a holiday week and it's even better because nobody's going to write about it until the following Tuesday. And so this got released Friday evening. And I, my first thought was why? Like, so I don't know. Do you have, do you have any theories or I, I honestly, you know what I think? I actually think, I think it was done on Friday and they just want to get it out. I'm going to go on this side that they knew people were, you know, wanting this, this to be talked about. I mean, you would, you would argue that, oh, they're releasing on a Friday evening because they don't want all the complaints and stuff of a trial that was not, you know, they had some changes in the midst, but look in this day and age, I don't, I think it's a lot different than 2006, right? Now we have Facebook, we have Twitter, um, and we know the medical community and social media is everywhere, you know. Yeah, is it not going to get the same amount of coverage? No, but will it get the same coverage? Yes. I mean, this is what people have been wanting. Uh, and I and I think, we're, like, look, we're, you and I are doing a pot. We, you and I reinvigorated <laughs> a podcast that we haven't done in six years. And we're like, we got to talk about exactly the remdesivir. I mean, like, this is going to explode. I mean, you just wait till next week. Whew. So yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was I was going to say. And so I did see on Twitter somebody had contacted New England Journal um, and they provided a screenshot of a reply saying that their explanation was that this is when it, it was finished and it was available. And so they published as media as immediately as it was uh, available to be published. Yeah. The, the other thing that I saw um, when I asked about this on Twitter that somebody had suggested was, um, they wanted to avoid any stock market impact whenever there's been kind of major hmm. news releases. I mean, there was the, the vaccine, yeah, Moderna, the Moderna thing, that the happened Moderna vaccine, yeah. Yeah. which was on eight people and it, you know, shifted the stock market immediately. 30%. And so <laughs> a huge I, I would say if I, if I were to buy into conspiracy theories about the the timing of the release, I, I could I could buy not wanting to impact the stock market to give people time to digest it, and I actually think that that might be a reasonable thing to do. But don't you think the mo- the stock market impact was when was Dr. Fauci saying, you know, this is standard of care? That was a bigger deal, right? And they'd already they already progressed forward. I mean, I agree. It is it is interesting timing, and you hope that they weren't sitting on this for on the Wednesday before and didn't want to put it out until Friday because of that reason. But I just I don't. I will say this: I think in the time of this pandemic, the more that we believe in each other, that they're doing it for the for the best for everyone, the better off we're going to be. Even if that's not necessarily the case. You have such a kind heart. Well, I will say this: um, in this moment in time. I think kind heart is a good good approach. I I agree. Yeah, I think it's probably time to say goodbye for the first uh, episode of our first re episode as we make our comeback. I think this was a, a good topic to start off with. I, this Perfect. paper is awesome. incredibly fascinating. Yep, learned a lot. Thank you for doing it. No, thank you for joining me. We're gonna try and stick to a weekly schedule. Yes. And so everybody should be looking out for a new episode next week and hope everybody enjoys it. Thanks, everybody.